Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome to this seminar in the Tough Questions series. It's entitled, Did Jesus Really Rise from the Dead? Now, as you go through the rest of your Christian life, and it could well be that you are looking forward to 60, 70, maybe even 80 years of being a Christian, people who aren't yet Christians will ask all kinds of questions. They might well ask you, what's your view on homosexuality? They might ask you, what's your take on sex before marriage. They might ask you, if there really is a God like you say there is, then why does this God allow so much suffering? They might ask you, hey, look, how would you respond to all this Muslim fundamentalist violence? What do you think of Islam? What about other religions? And you know what? We could be looking forward to hundreds of questions that will be asked over the years. And you know what? Every single time that we respond to any of these questions, our response is based upon the fact that we think that Christianity is true. And so inevitably, as that friendship develops, eventually that person will ask, well, why do you think that Christianity is true? What is it that makes you think that Christianity is true? And ultimately, folks, the reason why Christianity is true is because Jesus rose from the dead. And the Apostle Paul himself said that if Christ is not risen, then our faith is in vain. So it would be true to say that there is nothing that is more important than the question, did Jesus really rise from the dead? Now, what I plan to do is to speak for 25 minutes, no more, and then I would love to invite you to come and ask any questions that you may have. We have a microphone here that I'm pointing to and a microphone here that I'm pointing to and we'd love you to come and ask any question. Initially, I think about the resurrection, but hey, it could be about any other subjects that you're being asked about, or maybe your friends are interested to ask you, those who don't yet know Jesus. So how could we get into this subject? What we're really interested in is, okay, I was brought up to believe in Christianity. But is there any objective evidence that would lead somebody who was never brought up to believe any of this stuff to conclude that actually Christianity is true? Well, let's start perhaps with those people, people currently living. Because right now, somewhere between 1 billion and 2 billion of the six to seven billion people who are alive today, one to two billion people currently living are convinced that Jesus of Nazareth has punched a hole through death and that everyone who trusts in him, if you think of here's a barrier between this life that you and I are experiencing And here's the afterlife, should there be such a thing as the afterlife. We all agree that death is a reality. Between one and two billion people believe that Jesus of Nazareth punched a hole through death. And now everyone who follows him, all these one or two billion people, can follow Jesus through the hole, through the barrier, into eternal life. But did Jesus really rise from the dead? When I was a skeptic, uh, when I didn't go to church, when I didn't know anyone my age who went to church, it was historical evidence that persuaded me that Jesus must have risen physically from the dead. And that's a key reason why I decided to turn around and start following Christ. 
Now, very few people have ever claimed to be God. Most who have made that claim are frankly suffering mental illness. Few of them have won many followers because it's a pretty demanding role. But Jesus of Nazareth said that he would vindicate his spectacular prediction or his spectacular claim to be God would be vindicated by God raising him from the dead. Jesus heaped all of his supernatural claims upon this outrageous prediction. If they kill me, and they will kill me in Jerusalem, three days later, I'll prove that I am who I've claimed to be by rising physically from the dead. But did that event really happen? Well, Dr. Gary Habermas has made a detailed study of all the books and articles that have been published on the resurrection by credentialed scholars since 1975. Habermas is considered to have researched the academic output of scholars scrutinizing the resurrection more exhaustively than anyone else. He and his colleague, Dr. Michael Lycona, then selected only those facts that the vast majority of scholars, including skeptical ones, accept as historical fact. In other words, these guys rejected material, including material within the New Testament, that is most heavily challenged by skeptical scholars. So they chose to work with only those facts which the overwhelming majority of academics, both Christian and non-Christian, consider to be reliable. And so using this restrained, cautious approach, I want to see whether we can make a case for the resurrection of Christ using only four minimal facts. Facts that are accepted even by scholars who aren't Christians and who oppose the resurrection. And here is the first of those four minimal facts. Minimal fact number one, Jesus was crucified and died as a result. John Dominic Crossan is the co-founder of something called the Jesus Seminar. And he has spent most of his academic life seeking to debunk historic Christianity. But even Crossan admits, quote, that Jesus was crucified is as sure as anything historical can ever be, end quote. James D. Tabor is another high-profile attacker of Christianity. Tabor agrees. Tabor says, quote, we need have no doubt that given Jesus' execution by Roman crucifixion, Jesus was truly dead. More importantly, our ancient non-Christian sources, Tacitus, Josephus, the Jewish Babylonian Talmud, and Lucian of Samosata, they all say that Jesus was crucified. And all four of the Gospels report Jesus' death on the cross. And there are lots of other reasons why modern skeptics are so sure that Jesus died by crucifixion. For starters, these Roman soldiers were a professional crucifixion team. They were experts at executing people. Besides, if a prisoner escaped death, the responsible soldiers might be put to death themselves. So these blokes had a huge incentive to make absolutely sure that Jesus was already dead before they ever took his body down from the cross, which is why they shoved a spear up into his side to make absolutely sure. But could Jesus possibly have survived crucifixion? Maybe Jesus survived crucifixion and then in the cool air of the tomb, he might have recovered enough strength to roll away the stone and then overpower the guards 
and then appear to his disciples. Well, in my book, Aftershock, I wrote, the idea that Jesus never died on the cross asks us to believe that a man could survive a Roman flogging, a crucifixion from the world's most professional execution force, a spear through the heart, and then unwrap himself from yards of cloth, probably soaked in 34 kilograms of spice, push away a huge stone, fight his way past up to 16 guards, and then appear to his disciples as the picture of health, convincing them that one day they could have a glorious resurrection body just like his. This explanation also requires Jesus to become a liar and a hoaxer who contrived the world's most elaborate deception, Christianity. I don't think it's surprising that the survival theory has never really got off the ground. Next, minimal fact number two, Jesus' tomb was empty. Folks, even an atheist historian will tell you that on the third day, the tomb was empty. Three days after Jesus' dead body was buried, it simply wasn't there. Now, why are atheists willing to admit that the tomb was empty? Answer, because historians agree that if the dead body of Jesus had still been in the tomb, then the Jews or the Romans definitely would have produced Jesus' dead body as soon as the first Christians started claiming Jesus is alive. Remember, Jesus of Nazareth had been such a blasphemous threat to the Jews, and he'd been such a political threat to the Romans that these two groups had conspired together to get Jesus killed. The whole point of killing him was to snuff out Jesus and his embryonic movement. So the last thing they wanted was Jesus' disciples persuading people that he had risen from the dead. If they had had his dead body, then as the disciples toured Jerusalem and they were shouting, Hallelujah, Christ is risen, they were punching the air saying, Jesus is alive, then if the Jews or the Romans had had Jesus' dead body, they definitely would have put it on a cart and wheeled it behind the Christians saying, no, no, no. No, he's not alive. No, look, Jesus is dead. Here's his dead body. Come and touch it. Here it is. Jesus was, after all, a celebrity. You see, strictly speaking, Christianity should not exist. It should never have got off the ground. The so-called resurrection appearances of Jesus, they should have been instantly disproved by both the Jews and the Romans who had the dead body of Jesus in a sealed tomb guarded by soldiers. But neither the Jews nor the Romans ever did produce the body. That is because they themselves could see that the tomb was empty. So the Jews and the Romans never did produce the body. The reason was because Jesus had gone missing. Now the best they could do at the time to explain the fact of the empty tomb was to make up a story that Jesus' disciples had stolen his body whilst all the guards had fallen asleep, which, if nothing else proves, they definitely didn't have the body. Minimal fact number three, folks. Jesus' disciples believed that he rose and that he had appeared to them. Now, hang on, what about these so-called resurrection appearances? I mean, come on, aren't they really just legends which kind of grew up over time? I mean, after all, wasn't it hundreds of years later that these resurrection appearances were eventually written down? Well, we know that that is not the case. Because rather than hundreds of years later... Our earliest record of the resurrection appearances of Christ can be traced back to within a few months of the actual event. In a letter that today is called 1 Corinthians 15, 
we read these words written by the Apostle Paul. For what I received, I passed on to you. And let me just say that that phrase turns out to be absolutely crucial. For what I receive, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, He appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, He appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. Now, this document in and of itself presents several problems for anyone suggesting that the resurrection appearances are more legendary than they are historical. First of all, writing 22 years after the resurrection, Paul reminds the Corinthians that they can test whether the resurrection has any basis in fact or not, because the majority of the 500 or so witnesses to the resurrection are still living and they are willing to be interviewed. And then for a number of technical reasons to do with the actual Greek and Aramaic words that are included in this passage, this passage on the screen is thought to contain a much earlier creed, a creedal statement. And it's likely that Paul picked up the list that you're looking at now of the resurrection appearances of Christ shortly after his own conversion, which was in Damascus, or later when he takes a trip to Jerusalem to visit the two leaders of the Christian church, Peter and James. This visit is dated sometime between 35 and 38 AD. And Paul describes this trip when he writes his letter to the Galatians, chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. Now, here is the key point. It turns out that there's a wide agreement amongst scholars from all kinds of different backgrounds, all kinds of different persuasions, that this list of the resurrection appearances of Christ was already well-established when Paul collected it in around 35 AD. This list already existed in 35 AD, and that is when Paul collected it. So this shows that the resurrection appearances are as old as Christianity itself. This shows that the resurrection appearances are definitely not a much later legendary development. So we have got on the screen a very early report of Jesus' resurrection. Question. Now hang on a minute. What if the resurrection appearances were really just hallucinations? I mean, people who hallucinate, maybe they want to see something so badly that they think that they are seeing it. Sometimes, imaginary things seem real. Maybe the disciples imagined the resurrection. Well, psychologists study hallucinations. And let's just be clear, for this idea to work, we're going to have to say that all 550 or so people who saw the resurrected Jesus on 11 different occasions over a period of six weeks were all hallucinating the same thing. That everybody who had meals with him, that everybody who touched him, that everybody who had long conversations with him were all hallucinating the same thing. Now here is the problem with that. Psychologists study hallucinations, and there is no such thing as a group hallucination. We don't know of any group hallucinations. 
Only one person can see a specific hallucination at any one time. And there is no reason to think, for example, that I could somehow produce a hallucination in you. Remember, the whole point of a hallucination is that there's nothing actually there. There's nothing really there. So let's imagine I am having a hallucination. Nobody else can see exactly what I'm seeing because it's all in my mind. So even if two people did simultaneously hallucinate the risen Jesus, for one of those people, Jesus might be eating a piece of fish. But for the other of those people, the resurrected Jesus might be flying through the sky. And let's face it, hallucinations are very rare. They are usually caused either by bodily deprivation or by drugs. In fact, if you've ever met anyone who has had a hallucination, it would almost certainly have been caused by one of those two things. Are we really being asked to believe that over the course of many weeks that hundreds of people from all kinds of different backgrounds and temperaments all had identical simultaneous hallucinations? Remember, our earliest source says that over 500 people saw the resurrected Jesus on one occasion. Hallucinations can't be touched, but the resurrected Jesus was tangible. Even so, because there are so few options, I personally had expected to find some supporters for this theory. But hardly anyone has ever seriously argued for it because hallucinations are restricted to individuals. But there is another alternative, you know. Maybe the disciples just lied. Don't you think? That's got to be a possibility. Maybe they did steal Jesus' body and then they buried it somewhere, I don't know, in Peter's back garden, wherever, and then they began a rumor that Jesus had risen from the dead. So we are now talking, folks, about the world's most successful deception. Now let's imagine that the disciples did steal Jesus' body. Now I find this hard to believe in the first place because these men were strict Jews. They lived to a very high moral standard. But are we really going to say that these people, these disciples of Jesus, they went all over the world telling people that Jesus had risen from the dead when they knew that he hadn't. They knew it was a miserable lie. They knew in their hearts that Jesus wasn't risen at all. The reason they knew it was a lie was because they themselves had physically taken his dead body and buried it in the ground somewhere. The biggest problem with this argument is that the disciples didn't just say that Jesus was risen. They died for it. Oh, hang on a minute. I mean, that's not a problem at all. Loads of people die for their religious beliefs. Yes, that's exactly right. People die for what they believe to be true. People tend not to die for lies that they know are lies because they made up the lie themselves. And yet the disciples were literally crucified for their belief in the resurrection. These men were in the unique position of knowing without a doubt whether or not they had hoaxed the resurrection. If they had stolen the body, if they had somehow contrived the resurrection appearances, would they really have allowed themselves to be tortured to death for their lies? Because that's what happened. You see, These men were literally crucified for their belief in the resurrection. Right up until the last minute, think of, for example, Andrew, one of the disciples who was crucified in a star shape uh, because he wanted his death to take a longer amount of time. So Andrew's there, and he's in a star shape. It takes quite a few days for Andrew to die. At any point on the cross, any of the disciples could have said, oh, for goodness sake. Oh, come on, look, it's just a lie that we made up. Look, we just... 
okay, we stole the body. All right, yes, we, took, we, we buried it in Peter's back. Now, come on, just cut me down. From, that's all they had to say. The whole reason they were being crucified was because they were saying that Jesus had risen. But none of them ever said that. None of them ever said, no, no, just cut me down. We made up, it's a story, it's a lie, we made it up. None of them ever said that. Because they knew that Jesus had risen. But anyway, the key thing to understand is that our third minimal fact, which is accepted even by skeptics, even by opponents of Christianity, is that the disciples were not deliberately lying. They genuinely believed that Jesus rose and that he had appeared to them. Minimal fact number four, the conversion of the anti-Christian persecutor of the church, Saul of Tarsus. Now we have evidence that this man, Saul of Tarsus, he really was opposed to Christianity. Now he says that he was converted to Christ because he personally saw the resurrected Jesus and then had a conversation with him. And we have six ancient sources, Luke, Clement of Rome, Polycarp, Tertullian, Dionysius, and Origen, who all confirm that this newly converted Paul, as he started to call himself, was then willing to suffer continuously and even died for his belief that he had seen the resurrected Jesus. Okay, we've looked briefly at four minimal facts. Now let's imagine that our initial goal is that we want to undermine or at least we want to discredit the resurrection. We need to come up with something, an alternative theory, because any attempt to explain away these four facts can't leave any of these four facts out. Hey, if you were a member of a jury and you're on a jury at a criminal trial right now in the Old Bailey, and if the judge has just sent you out into the deliberation room right now, you would be looking for a verdict that doesn't strain or minimize any of the known facts. You'd be looking now for a verdict that best fits all the facts. You would be looking for a verdict that best fits the facts that aren't in dispute. Folks, the reason why I became convinced that Jesus must have risen from the dead is because the resurrection explanation of these four facts outdistances all the competing hypotheses by such a large margin. The resurrection explanation is the only explanatory theory that can accommodate all the known facts, the facts that aren't in dispute. For example, let's imagine that we say the resurrection never happened. Well, that's fair enough. I mean, I used to be a skeptic myself. We've still got to come up with something to account for the explosive growth and arrival of Christianity. The Roman historian Tacitus, who was born in 56 AD, he tells us, that there were, quote, an immense multitude of Christians in Rome by 64 AD, and that these Christians were willing to die for Jesus. Now, why would an immense multitude of people in Rome risk being killed by the Emperor Nero to worship as God, a man who had suffered the ultimate humiliation in Roman society? of being crucified, which was the equivalent in their culture of being a pedophile in our culture. In other words, the scum of the earth. Why would an immense multitude of people worship? Oh, oh, I praise you, scum of the earth. Why do that? Well, we know that happened. So let's say that I choose the hallucination theory to explain this historical fact. Even if the hallucination theory is correct, it doesn't fit all four minimal facts. 
even if I did reject everything psychologists tell us about hallucinations, even if I say, okay, I believe that Christianity is based on mass hallucination, fine, but I still have to explain the empty tomb. I still have to explain why the authorities didn't produce the dead body of Jesus. But at the end of the day, and at the end of this talk, somebody might understandably say, look, um, Adrian, I'm happy to have listened to what you had to say, um, but I just want you to know that the resurrection is not for me. I mean, Jesus may be risen for you, but he's not risen for me. Okay? Well, I think in response we can all agree that if we had been doubting Thomas as the resurrected Jesus turns up, as we push our finger towards his hand, we all agree, don't we, that either he would have touched a real human body or that he wouldn't have touched anything. I think we all agree that if you and I had been there on the first ever Easter Sunday, and if you and I had both walked in together into the supposedly empty tomb of Jesus, when we got in there in that small space, we would either both have seen, oh look, there is a dead body there. Look, let's just touch it and see. Oh yes, there's a dead body here. There's you and me and there's this dead body. Or we would have both walked into the same tomb of Jesus and we would have said, oh, uh, there is no dead human body in here. There's just you and me. Can you honestly say that as you and I left the tomb, that one of us would have turned to the other and said, well, it may have been empty for you, but it wasn't empty for me. No! Because I'm afraid, folks, that history is terribly brutal to relativism. Either Christianity is true for everyone, either the resurrection is true for everyone because the resurrection really happened or the resurrection isn't true for anyone because the resurrection didn't happen. Which brings us lastly to the effect of the resurrection right now. What does all of this mean? Well, let me just give you a little story. When I was a student many years ago, the college where I lived for those three years, the food wasn't great. But that didn't matter because we knew Alan Blackwood. And Alan Blackwood had a car. And let me tell you, at the time, for a student, an undergraduate student to have a car, that was a big deal. And so every night we drove in Alan's car to my kind of pizza. And we would sit in the back of Alan's car eating pizza. And because we were A, students, and B, blokes, I have to tell you that it never occurred to us to empty the used, greasy, dirty pizza boxes out of Alan's car. So by about week seven of term, Alan's car, we couldn't actually get in to Alan's car because it was so full of empty, used, greasy pizza boxes. Now, 13 years after we left university, at the age of 34, one of my pizza-run friends phoned me to tell me that he had become a Christian. And I asked him, well, what happened? And his explanation was, Adrian, I did to God what we did to Alan's car. And I said, what on earth do you mean? He said, I had so filled my life with stuff that I had crowded God out of my life. Now, let's imagine that this black bin bag represents the bin bag that we used to empty all those pizza boxes out of Alan's car, which we did eventually. And let's imagine that this bin bag also represents all the dirt and all the grease in my life, all the stuff that I'm not proud of, all of my sins. Now, if it is true, as the Bible claims that heaven is a perfect place, then clearly 
I can't go to heaven because I pollute it. I pollute with my rubbish a perfect heaven. But if Jesus is perfect, if Jesus never sinned, if he never did anything wrong, then if I somehow could get myself in Christ, then by definition, whatever happens to Jesus happens to me or happens to you if you're in Christ. So let's imagine that the supposed afterlife is up here. The life that you and I are living is down here and this is the barrier of death. If Jesus really did, bang, punch a hole through death and go into the next life, if that event really happened, then whatever happens to Jesus happens to you because you're in Christ. Jesus said at the raising of Lazarus, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will live even if they die. In other words, even if they die, no problem, bang, we're going through the barrier of death. If you're in me, whatever happens to me happens to you. And that means that your friends can be in Christ. They can follow Jesus through that barrier and they can be in heaven with Christ. Folks, right now, more than a billion people currently living are claiming to be experiencing a relationship with Jesus because Jesus is alive. I know that I've experienced his love. I know that I've experienced his power. I know what a difference he's made to me. So if Christ is risen, death isn't the end. If Christ is risen, it doesn't matter what you're facing, there really is hope. If Christ is risen, there is life after death. If Christ is risen, that is great news for you, it is great news for me, and it is great news for the literally thousands of people that you and I know who don't yet know Christ but can know Christ because Jesus is alive. That's the end of my talk. Thank you very much for your attention. Great. Okay, could I just ask somebody on the team here just to help me out with the questions? Could you just, for me, just turn off these two fans on the stage because I found I couldn't hear the questions with the fans on. I know that you can't hear the fans, but up here, all I can hear is fans. So uh, the, the two fans on the other side. So if you have a question about anything that's been said, I just encourage you now just to make your way either to this microphone or this one. We will finish bang on time in 20 minutes. We'll finish the seminar. We'll come to an end. If you have any question about anything that I've said about the evidence for the resurrection, maybe an objection that your friend has raised with you, or if you have an objection about something else that's been raised in this series, a typical objection, any other question, the sort of thing you get asked, please come up and ask, and I'll start taking questions. So just stay with us, guys, for 20 minutes. And then at half past, I promise you, we'll close and we'll be done. Yes, go for it. Thanks very much. Um, when you were saying about when, uh, when the, when about those group um, hallucinations, yes, couldn't God have just given them a vision? When I was speaking about the group hallucinations, couldn't God have just given them a vision? Yeah. Well. Um, I suppose on one level you could say, yes, that's possible. But on another level, that wasn't what they were claiming. They were claiming that it was a physical experience. So they claimed to have physically touched him and physically seen him. And it was actually really important to the first Christians. So if you were to read, as we do read 1 Corinthians 15... The whole thing that Paul's talking about there is a physical, tangible body, a physical, tangible resurrection body. In other words, not just a hallucination, not just a vision, but something real and tangible. So it's actually quite important for us that when we are in heaven, we won't just be having a mental experience, we won't just be spirits, but we will have a physical body. So yes, I think it's possible, but that isn't what they were claiming. Good question. Yeah, did you have a question? 
Could somebody just turn these fans off for me? I don't know if anybody can hear my voice on the technical side. If you can turn the fans off, it means I can hear the questions. Yeah, go for it. Um, I, read a, I read about a debate that went on a few years ago um, and in which um, William Lane Craig was winning about creation. And then later he claimed that, uh, talked about the resurrection. And then all of a sudden everyone seemed to turn around and uh, talk about how ridiculous that was. So, but wouldn't a God who'd be able to make creation just be able to bring someone back alive very easily? Well, I agree with you. I think you, you're making a great point. I agree that for God, in fact, when the Apostle Paul is on trial at the end of the book of Acts, he actually makes exactly your point. He says, why would any of you think it incredible that God raises the dead? So I agree with you. I think the challenge we have is that any natural explanation of these facts would seem to be better than a supernatural explanation. When historians are looking at any question, you don't jump to a supernatural explanation of the facts, you go to a natural explanation. And as I tried to explain the talk, the reason why I'm a Christian is because I, like everybody else, had expected a natural explanation to work, but none of the natural explanations do work. The only explanatory theory that does work is a supernatural explanation. Good question. Any other questions? Please come forward. Let me just mention some of the most common objections that I come across, and I present this material on university campuses all over the place. So, if so many academics agree on the minimal facts, why don't they all accept the resurrection? Well, two reasons. Number one, because although all four of the minimal facts I've mentioned are accepted by the vast majority, we're talking about 85, 90% of academics, there are at least some of them who would only accept three of the four. So they might accept one, three, and four, or two, three, and four, or one, two, and three, but not four. The second reason why they don't all accept the resurrection is because there's a moral implication, there's a lifestyle implication. If I'm a professional historian, and I come to the conclusion that, for example, Julius Caesar invaded Britain, I don't have to live differently. I don't have to fill out my income tax reform differently. I don't have to change my moral behavior with my internet viewing habits or my marital expectations. Nothing changes if I come to the conclusion that Julius Caesar invaded Britain. But if I conclude that Jesus of Nazareth, who claimed to be God, really did rise from the dead, I have to live differently. And so understandably at that point, all the possible objections, people go to them and they want to sort of stay with the objection because the alternative is unthinkable, which is that Christianity is true and that I've got to change my life as soon as possible. Another objection that people over the years have brought, and this originates with a Scottish philosopher called David Hume, is that whenever you hear, as you occasionally do, a miracle report, you should always discount that miracle report simply because miracles contradict human experience. Now, that argument no longer wins the day in philosophy for a simple reason. It has been demonstrated that there are literally millions of people currently living who are claiming to be experiencing miracles. So there's a, a two-volume book by Craig S. Keener. He's an academic who's researched miracle claims all over the world, and he's shown that right now, particularly south of the equator, but also in Europe and all over the world, people are claiming to be experiencing miracles. So it can't be the case, oh, you must instantly discount miracles. Everybody knows that miracles don't happen. You can't say that anymore because we know that millions of people do claim miracles happen. Okay, I've got a couple of questions. Do you want to ask your question? Go for it. Yeah, it isn't based on this talk. Okay, that's fine. Um, it's like based on the series in the yeah, 15s go for and it. 19s. Yeah. Um, is it okay for Christians to uh, accept gay rights? Is it okay for Christians to accept gay rights? Yeah. I think that will depend upon what specifically the gay right claim is. So there will be some, within that very broad agenda, there'll be some bits that you might immediately feel, no, hang on a minute, that would contradict what's said in the Bible, but other bits of it that you want to champion. 
so with it, a huge part, in my experience, a huge part of the gay rights movement is a campaign against the evil of homophobia. And I want to cheer. I want to get the placards and say, yeah, I agree. I, 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 think it's, I think we should cheer and applaud that element. So I think it's a very broad group. And within that, I think there are all kinds of different elements. Perhaps we can talk more at the end about that. What, what's your question? Do you want to go for it? Um, so when you get hypnotism, yes. you, um, there, there are people who can have group hallucinations in that sense where they're all thinking of the same thing or all being hypnotized to do the same thing. So if that's a form of group hallucination, what's wrong with the disciples having a similar thing? Okay, this is a good question that you're asking, and I think there's a distinction between hypnotism and hallucination. I actually have never heard any psychologist suggest that the disciples were hypnotized for that length of time. So if you were to study hypnotism, to be hypnotized for that length of time for so many people in so many different locations to all be simultaneously hypnotized at the same time when they've all got different temperaments, they're in all kinds of different places. Remember, a hypnotist will read the crowd. So he will look at people's faces and he will immediately see who's susceptible and who isn't. But here we've got a completely indiscriminate, wide group of people over all kinds of different places. And even if the hypnotism theory is correct, it wouldn't disprove the resurrection because you'd still got to account for the empty tomb. So each time, in my experience, the empty tomb is, if you like, the rock. So you have all these theories, but then they come to the empty, fall, empty tomb and that's where they crash down. This is a good question. I think, I think, I think that's a good, a good question to ask, but it wouldn't disprove the resurrection. Let's do a couple more in the last few minutes of the most common objections. Here's a related one. Were the resurrection appearances wish fulfillment? In other words, let's imagine that I'd been a first century Jew. I'm a mega religious person. I believe all this stuff about God and the first five books of the Bible or the Old Testament. I'm living in this religious culture. I'm living in a theocracy. Maybe I'm kind of hoping that some prophet is going to physically come back from the dead. Maybe that's my wish. Maybe that's my belief system. So when I hear a claim that somebody's done just that, I'm likely to believe it. Folks, we know that that is not what first century Jews were expecting because of this book. This book by N.T. Wright called The Resurrection of the Son of God is the most exhaustive research ever on what a typical first century Jew was expecting in terms of the resurrection. So let's be clear. These people that lived in the first century in Jerusalem did believe, well certainly the Pharisees did, as you know the Sadducees didn't, but the Pharisees did believe in a resurrection. But they believed in a resurrection at the end of time. They believed in an apocalypse when the world came to an end. They believed that when the world ends there will be a resurrection of people who have died. That's the resurrection that they believed in. N.T. Wright has shown that these people definitely did not believe in dead people coming back to life any more than you or I would believe. Let's imagine that in Norwich, somebody was certified dead. The population of Norwich would not think, oh, yes, he may be certified dead today, but I think you'll find in three days later, he'll almost certainly be back jumping around alive again. That isn't the case with first century Jews. Remember, Christianity exploded into life with thousands of Jews in Judea suddenly worshipping a man. Now, that's a big deal. No historian would ever have predicted that because first century Jews were strict monotheists. The last thing they wanted to do was worship a human being. They thought that was an appalling idea. They thought that was idolatry. So why did thousands of Jews suddenly commit idolatry by worshipping a carpenter as God? Let me ask you, what would it take you to do something tomorrow that right now today you think that thing is disgusting 
appalling and immoral. And yet tomorrow you're going to do it. What would it take for you to stand on your head and make that kind of change? Folks, that is exactly what worshipping a human being was to a first century Jew. Disgusting, appalling and immoral. And yet we know that thousands of Jews suddenly did it. Let me ask uh, you guys. Do you you have a question? Go for it. Yeah, I have a question. So my question is, is there such thing as being a liberal Christian where you can believe in the Bible and everything it says, but live a very like, Western lifestyle? Yes, there definitely is such a thing as doing exactly that, and uh, lots of people do. The question would be, is there a consistency between what you're saying about your beliefs and your lifestyle? So, for example, let's imagine that I'm a Christian leader employed by a church, and let's imagine that I'm teaching from the Bible that I believe that marriage is for life, and yet, in my behavior, I'm actually with a number of different women at any one time. There would be a logical inconsistency between what I'm saying and my lifestyle. Now, it's very easy to live like that, and lots of people presumably could live like that. There can be a difference between what they're claiming and what they're saying and the way they're behaving, but that wouldn't be an attractive model. I don't think anyone in the world would be drawn to someone who lacked authenticity. Or to put it positively, the thing that's attractive to people is when they think that you're genuine. If they think that you're a genuine person because they can see that your lifestyle matches what you're saying, they think, oh, I can trust this person. But nobody would trust someone who was living two different lives. So I think that that does happen, but I think it's an inconsistency, and I don't find it an attractive or credible or authentic model, probably any more than you do. Thanks for your question. What did you want to ask? Go for it. (laughs) Say I was talking to my unchristian friends, and they asked... um, what if the Bible is all made up? What should I say? You were talking to your non-Christian friends and they, say, say I was. and they were saying, what if the Bible was all made up? What would you say in response to that? Well, I think there's a number of things that you could say and this is a good place to start. First of all, let's just discount all the supernatural claims in the Bible in its entirety, like all the stuff, like all the miracles that supposedly happened, like the resurrection. Let's just discount all of that stuff and leave that over there. First thing we could ask is, okay, let's imagine we start with the assumption that it's all made up. What can we test right now about the Bible? So let's take, for example, Luke, who's the writer of one of the three, one of the four Gospels, but he also writes the book of Acts. So he's written a major chunk of the New Testament. Let's start off testing Luke's accuracy where we can test it, for example, in his place names, in his use of Roman names, in his geography. And what historians have done is they've tested every place name that Luke refers to, every Roman title, every bit of geography, and not found a single mistake. Now, that doesn't prove that Luke's supernatural claims are correct, but it gets us off the starting line. It gets us to the point where we can see that where we can test the general reliability of the Bible, it passes with flying colors. For example, up until fairly recently, critics of the Bible used to say that there is no such thing as a polytarch. Luke refers to a category of Roman officials called Polytarchs at Thessalonica. And if you were a non-Christian attacking the Bible 50 years ago, you might well have mentioned this. You would have said, well, here's one of hundreds of reasons why we can't trust the Bible. Well, since then, we found inscriptions mentioning Polytarchs not just in one place, but all over the place. So archaeology has gone a long way towards establishing the general reliability of the Bible. So, We've also got the arguments that I mentioned on, in Tuesday's seminar, and if you want to get the decent version of this, you can actually download off iCloud now the first part of Tuesday's talk here. So we have, first of all, we've got um, very 
early documents. In the John Rylands Library in Manchester, we've got a, a, a part of the New Testament that was written down just 40 years after the original was first written. That's compared to a typical gap of around 1,000 years for documents that we've got today that we've lost the originals of. But more importantly, we have 5,686 Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. And the similarity between them and 10,000 other Latin manuscripts and thousands of other Ethiopic and Armenian manuscripts means that when you put all of these together, if they're all saying the same thing, there can't have been miscopying going on. And these are the two key pillars of the argument for the reliable transmission of the Scriptures. So we've got very good reasons for thinking that these Gospels were first of all written very soon after the event. Mark's Gospel was probably written 27 years after the crucifixion. These documents are written within the lifetime of the first Christians. They're either eyewitness reports or they're documents that are based upon eyewitness reports. And we have good reasons for thinking that that original historical information about Jesus of Nazareth, that information hasn't been corrupted either before those documents were written down through Chinese whispers because they're written too early or been corrupted by subsequent embellishment as those original documents were subsequently copied. I mean, that is a very brief case in probably two minutes for the reliability of the New Testament. But I'd encourage you... Uh, listen to choose this talk if you weren't here or there's actually quite a number of books in uh, the bookshop let me just mention one real quick which I happen to have brought with me this book is called Christianity on Trial by Mark Lanier Uh, as you know in in America they're really keen on trial lawyers I mean a top trial lawyer is earning billions of dollars it just so happens that right now the number one most successful trial lawyer in America is an evangelical Christian who teaches Sunday school. Now, in America, as you know, Sunday school isn't like our Sunday school, which is typically for children. In America, uh, Sunday school is for adults, okay? And Mark Lanier has made a study of the resurrection appearances and the resurrection accounts in the gospel of, as you know, there's not much about the resurrection in Mark, but there's a lot in Matthew, in Luke, and in John. Sometimes people say, oh, well, the resurrection accounts, you know, they differ, you know, there are inconsistencies. So he's looked at that as a lawyer, and he's concluded that the amount of agreement between the different eyewitnesses and the amount of dissimilarity is about right. In other words, if you were on a jury at a trial, and all the eyewitnesses come up to the, um, the, the, the stand, and they all say exactly the same thing, you'd immediately think, hang on a minute, they talk to each other. Something's up here. That's like they're reading from a script. But if they describe roughly the same sort of stuff, but from different perspectives, there's a few differences in the way they're presenting it from their perspective. But the main sequence of events, the key things, like for exact, the, the fact that the women were the first witnesses of the resurrection, they're the first witnesses of the empty tomb. You know, the, the, the main facts are there. They all agree on those. He studied it and he says that this is one of the reasons why he is a Christian is because he thinks that those documents pass that test. Yes, um, there's a young lady behind you. Go for it. Hi, this is completely unrelated, but sure. is there anything in the Bible to suggest that um, people changing genders is like wrong or unnatural? Uh, is there anything in the Bible to suggest that people changing genders is unnatural? I would imagine, and please put me right because I don't know the answer to your question, I would imagine that that question simply did not come up in that culture. I can't imagine a surgical procedure at that time that would make that a possibility. I might be wrong, so please just immediately ignore my reply if that's not the case, but I don't think that that would have cropped up. We've got 60 seconds left. Can I just make one um, final comment? Um, You might wonder, okay, are there any other minimal facts? We've mentioned four. I'll just mention a fifth as we close. It's the conversion of Jesus' brother, James. Anyone reading the Gospels gets an enormous surprise when the book of Acts starts. Who is the leader of the Christian church. It's someone who didn't even believe in Jesus. 
up until the resurrection. John chapter 7 verse 5 tells us that Jesus' brother James did not believe that his brother was the Messiah. Quite honestly, if my brother was claiming to be the Son of God, I would have found it quite hard to believe that my brother was the Son of God. I mean, that would be a, such a freakish concept, I'm not sure I could get my head around it. Why is James converted? He's converted by a resurrection appearance. And that, again, it turns out, is one of these facts that the vast majority of scholars, even skeptical ones, they do think that's genuine. So I want to encourage you, when we put these five facts together, when we look at the evidence, the case for the resurrection is very strong. In my opinion, the best evidence we have that Christianity is true is the case for the resurrection and the evidence. In my opinion, the the evidence is surprisingly strong. I don't know whether you feel emotionally whether God has given you much or even enough for you to live this life of faith. In my understanding from my study, we have so much evidence for the resurrection that for me, the conclusion was compelling. It must be the case that Jesus is alive.